with the bear now disoriented, that we would both hightail it out of there, run as fast as our legs could carry us, and get out of the area. Well, fortunately, we never had to make good on that. I'm happy to say we didn't have any bears running at us. Fast forward now, that was several years ago, fast forward to this past summer as I was on sabbatical uh, visiting beautiful Canmore, Alberta with my brother and his wife for a weekend. And one of the days that we were out there, we decided rather spontaneously that we would go on a hike along the base of a mountain. And just as we began our hike, on a trail that ran parallel uh, with a golf course, suddenly a greenskeeper started shouting and running toward us, telling us that not 20 minutes ago, a large male grizzly bear had been spotted about 50 meters up the mountain from where, where we were, and that we needed to proceed with due caution and alertness and make sure that we had our bear spray on us. We didn't have any bear spray. So we had come onto that trail woefully un unprepared, completely unprepared, and we very quickly, all three of us, decided that we would abandon our hike and go back to the car. Have you ever found yourself unprepared when you knew in advance that you should be prepared? I can think of other examples from my life. For example, I was never good at math, I'm still not, and I just, I didn't prepare, though I knew I should for many math tests as a kid, and as a result, I got horrible math marks. Maybe some of you can relate to that, or maybe there's something in your life that you knew you had to be prepared for, but you were not prepared. Well, our parable, we're in the parables of Jesus, our parable this morning from Jesus is a parable about being prepared. It's a story about wisely making proper preparations. And the parable is found in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 25. Please, if you have a Bible, we invite you to turn there now, whether a paper Bible or a digital Bible. We'll also have the verses on screen. Matthew 25. Now, just prior to our parable... Jesus has been talking about his return, his second coming. And in verses 43 and 44 of chapter 24, Jesus has specifically mentioned there how his second coming will happen at an unexpected hour. Like a thief coming to a house at night. As we get into chapter 25, the context has not changed. Jesus is still talking about his second coming, and Jesus gives us this parable. He says, then, that is, at the future time of my return, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Now let's spend time with this parable and let's try to remain, that's not the whole parable, but let's try to remain 
at least for now, strictly at the level of the story itself. We'll travel through it at story level first, and then after that, we're going to go back and kind of widen our interpretive horizon. So in verse 1, Jesus has already located us in the setting of a wedding. There is a bridegroom mentioned here, a man who is marrying his bride. And there are ten virgins in the parable who go out to meet the bridegroom. Now, who are these virgins? There is some debate about their function and about their location at this wedding. So speaking of function, were these ten virgins like bridesmaids or attendants of the bride, or had they been chosen by the groom to be servants in his home for the wedding? And either option is possible. Furthermore, concerning location, we ask, where exactly are these ten ladies waiting here for the arrival of the groom? Are they waiting at the groom's house as the groom leads his bride to his home after the wedding banquet? Or are these ladies waiting at the bride's house for the arrival of the groom so that the banquet can begin? We can't be totally sure, but most likely, based on what transpires in the parable, most likely these ten ladies are part of the bride's Entourage, they are sort of like bridesmaids, and they are waiting at her house for the arrival of the groom, and when he comes, the banquet can then begin. We do notice, don't we, that the ten ladies are described as virgins. Now, according to Leon Morris, in this first century context, married women were not typically attendants at weddings, only young unmarried girls who were virgins. And each of the ten, notice, has taken a lamp as they go to meet the bridegroom. The lamp in question is either a bundle of rags fixed to a stick ready to be soaked in olive oil and lit on fire. In other words, more like a torch. Or the lamp is an actual device that has a wick and has a reservoir for oil. All ten of these young ladies are going out to meet the bridegroom at this early point in the story. All ten of them, listen, simply assume, with no doubts, no questions, they simply assume that they will soon end up at the celebratory feast inside the house with a slice of wedding cake on a plate sitting in front of them. They assume that. But then a red flag goes up, doesn't it, in verse 2. Jesus says, five of them were what? Foolish, and five were wise. It's interesting, the word translated foolish here is the Greek word moros, from which we get our word moron. So five of these young wedding attendants were moronic. (laughs) 
They were foolish, while the other half, the other five, were wise. And the word wise here has to do with being prudent, with being sensible. So we have five prudent, and we have five that are less than prudent. Jesus explains further, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. In a way, the foolish five here were like the pastor who had failed to take bear spray on his hike. I was in no way prepared for the contingency, for the possibility that I might meet meet a grizzly bear. Right? Very foolish of me. Very foolish. The foolish five here were not prepared for the possibility that their lamps might need to burn for extended periods of time in the night should the bridegroom show up late for whatever reason. Well, then we come to verse 5. Watch what happens. As the bridegroom was what? Delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. Now, two things to take note of here, friends. First, the bridegroom was delayed. He hadn't shown up yet. Why? We don't know. But the ten young ladies are there waiting and no groom. It's usually the bride that's late, right? In this case, no groom. Half an hour goes by. An hour goes by. Two hours. He was delayed. Secondly, notice that all ten, notice this carefully, all ten of these young ladies, as they wait for the delayed groom, they all, all ten, nod off and go to sleep. The five wise ladies nod off, and the five foolish ladies do also. They all sleep. So that sleep here is not a bad thing that we can pin only on the foolish, right? The wise also sleep. Everybody sleeps. Amen? Should be a big amen there. (laughs) Verse 6. But at midnight, supposed to have dinner, right? At midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Now notice how late the bridegroom is when he finally arrives. Midnight. Quite a delay, indeed, before he finally shows up for this banquet. Well, that sudden cry that goes out that the bridegroom has arrived, it then provokes, notice, a flurry of action. Verse 7, Then all those virgins, all ten of them, all ten, rose and trimmed their lamps. In other words, all ten of them got up from their sleep. They put their lamps in order. If these lamps are supposed to be torches, the five wise ladies carefully poured some additional olive oil from their flasks onto onto the rags, but the five foolish, of course, didn't have any extra olive oil, and their torches are burning low, and they're threatening to go out. Verse 8, and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, 
for our lamps are going out. And in verse 9, the original Greek seems a little more punchy than the English Standard Version has it. For example, in the, in the New American Standard Bible, the wise ladies, the prudent ladies, replied to the foolish, no, there most certainly would not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. So there is an assertiveness here from the wise ladies as they reply to the foolish. And the wise ladies, notice in the text, if you have your eyes on it, notice that the wise ladies get no rejoinder, they get no counter-argument from the foolish five. Notice that. The foolish five don't respond here with, oh, come on, please, or anything like that. There is no begging, there is no pleading. Verse 10 has the foolish five already on their way to the store to buy oil for themselves and while they were going to buy. Now notice how the action just accelerates very quickly now. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. But the five foolish weren't there, of course, when he finally arrives and those who were ready, namely the wise five, went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. And we can almost hear the reverberation of the door as it shuts. Right? Wish I had a door here. Verses 11 and 12. Afterward, the other virgins, the, the five foolish ones, came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Open to us, Lord, Lord. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Notice that. I do not know you. To know someone is to be in a relationship with that person, yes? There was a lack of relationship here between the five foolish ladies and the bridegroom. I do not know you. And the parable ends right there with the five foolish ones shut out of the party. Now, as promised, we're going to now widen our interpretive horizon after having just journeyed through this parable at story level. And the first thing to say now is that it's not a stretch whatsoever to identify Jesus himself as the bridegroom in the parable, after all, Jesus has already identified himself as a bridegroom in this same Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verse 15. The people of Israel knew that their God, Yahweh, had identified himself as their bridegroom in the Old Testament scriptures. 
Isaiah 54, 5, God had said to his people, your maker is your husband. Yahweh Almighty is his name. And Isaiah 62, verse 5, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And we might add Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah 31, 32, Hosea chapter 2, where God calls himself the husband of Israel, Israel being his bride, his wife. In the gospel accounts, Jesus being Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, boldly applies the title of bridegroom to himself. Jesus is the bridegroom in our parable, and the whole parable, friends, once again, is about being prepared. Amen? Being prepared or not being prepared to meet the bridegroom when he comes, when he comes again the second time. Again, a reminder that the entire context of this passage is Jesus talking about his second coming, yes? Talking about his return. And we will, listen, we will either be prepared like the wise to meet him when he comes, to meet him for the feast, for the party, or we will not be prepared like the five foolish. And for the unprepared, the door to the party will be forever shut. Now listen. The parable starts out with ten virgins. And in the first verse, the ten are indistinguishable. All ten look the same as the parable starts. All ten have lamps. All ten are going out to meet the bridegroom. All ten assume at that early point in the parable, it's, it's taken for granted in the minds of each of the ten that very soon they will all be feasting at the celebration all ten are presuming on a blessed future at the table with the bridegroom, but in reality, there are five wise who are prepared and five foolish who are not prepared. And so what about you and I? Are some of us assuming and presuming that we will be at what Revelation 9.9 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb when in fact we've never been born again into a vital relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, if you drive a car, 
you'll know that the car is equipped with a series of warning lights, right, that can warn you if something is not working right. And one of those warning lights is the check oil light. Take this parable in Matthew 25 as the check oil warning light in your life. Check your oil. Are you prepared with oil like the five, five, the five wise ladies in the parable? Are you prepared for the return of Jesus Christ? Are you ready? Well, pastor, what what does it look like to be ready? What does it look like to to live in a state of preparedness for the return of Jesus Christ? Well, isn't it interesting that the next place Jesus goes after our parable is to another parable, the parable of the talents. Isn't that interesting? And the parable of the talents defines for us what readiness for his return should look like. Namely, readiness or preparedness for his return entails us stewarding what he has given us in this life. Amen? Stewarding what he has given us in this life, putting it to use. Offering up ourselves as living sacrifices, Romans 12. Offering up our possessions. Offering up our time, our gifts, our abilities, our opportunities for his kingdom and his church. The person who is in a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, born again by his spirit, forgiven of sins, will do this joyfully joyfully. And all the while, that person will be conscious of where they live, their address. What do I mean by that? Well, did you know that your address, the place where you live right now, is in verse 5 of our parable? Look at that word, delayed. The bridegroom was delayed. That's your current address. That's where we all live, without exception. We live in the delay time, in the waiting time prior to the second coming of the bridegroom. He is coming to be marveled at. Now, I want you to consider this very carefully, my friend. Your entire life and my entire life are actually awaiting for something. Waiting for what? Waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. Waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the second coming of Jesus will absolutely, for sure, happen. Amen? There is no doubt that can be attached to it. He will come again. Why? Because God has promised it and God has a record of 100% in the fulfillment of his promises. Perfect record. Jesus is coming again. It may be soon. 
It may be later, but he's coming again. And we live in the delay, in the waiting for that sure event. So think of this. Even as we, some of us, nervously watch Vladimir Putin, even as we get ready for our upcoming surgery, even as we travail over a wayward child, even as we go out and have a nice dinner with friends, even as we board the metro, even as we struggle along with clinical depression, even as we do our online banking, we are living in a waiting period for the sure arrival of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.7, we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, as Helmut Tielica once put it, the risen and ascended Jesus, he said, will appear on the horizon of the world one day. He will come again. We just don't know when. He seems delayed. But in his delay, we wait prepared. As Jesus says in the verse right after our parable, in 25.13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. To watch, as Jesus commands here, is to do what? Well, it's not a passive thing. It's to live prepared, to live at the ready. In the delay time, what do we do? We live into our calling. We exercise our gifts. We are faithful. We spread the gospel. We are lights in the world. We love our neighbor. We love our enemies. We stay on God's mission for God's world. This is our flask of oil. This is our preparation. This is what our readiness to meet the bridegroom looks like. So, so what do we do? Well, we get on with building the ark, so to speak, in holy fear before the coming flood, like Noah. Noah. We obey the Lord and we go like Abraham even when he didn't know where he was going. We regard disgrace for the sake of Jesus Christ of great value like Moses who was looking ahead to his reward. We live and we act and we speak faithfully with our lives oriented to the bridegroom as we await his return. Every single day, we fight the good fight, we persevere toward the finish line, we keep the faith. And we sleep. Now, I want us to consider this. We've said already that the ten, all ten, Young ladies sleep in the parable as they wait for the bridegroom. The five foolish sleep, 
but the five wise sleep also. But would it be fair for us to conjecture here, as we look at this, to conjecture that the quality of sleep for the two groups was at least slightly different, one group from the other. The five wise maidens knew, even as their eyes got heavy and they're starting to nod off, they knew that they had come prepared for the delay with their flasks of oil. All five wise ladies drifted off to sleep. They would have had a sense of peace, a sense of security, because they knew that they had come prepared. But for the five foolish maidens, would there be that nagging thought somewhere in the back of their minds as their eyes became heavy with sleep that, mm, you know, we should have brought flasks of oil with us? We're, we're unprepared if our lamps need to burn a little longer than expected. My friends, the wise can sleep peacefully and securely knowing that they are prepared for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Jesus in his mercy knows, he knows that our bodies have been designed such that we need sleep. Amen? This is a recurring theme in these parables, this, this concept of sleep. Sleep is a blessing. Sleep is a good thing. The wise can drift off to sleep every night knowing, as R.T. Francis put it, that when the time comes for Jesus to return, everything will be in place. The wise person falls asleep prepared. The wise person in Jesus does not have to be up at 2 a.m. and 3 a.m., on red alert with a newspaper in hand, trying to connect world events with the timing of Jesus' return and making end times charts? No. The wise person in Jesus, the person in relationship with him who lives his or her waking hours in faithfulness to Jesus Christ, who is on mission for Jesus according to their calling, that person can simply go to bed prepared, and safe and secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're foolish, if you're a person who's unprepared, the focus of your life being on something other than Jesus and his kingdom, for you who lack a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, your sleep, listen, your sleep will be sharply interrupted one day. I'm just the messenger. Sharply interrupted one day when he returns as you discover in that terrifying moment that oil cannot be borrowed. That another person's preparation cannot be shared with you. It will be terrifying. to wake up from the slumber of your life and discover that you've got no oil and the door to the eternal party with God is shut and you hear him say, I do not know you. That is an indescribably terrifying prospect. 
And so today, you need to come to Christ. Put it as plainly as I can. Today, you need to come to Christ. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Surrender to Jesus today, this very day. Not one of us knows the precise hour when Jesus will return. Not one of us knows the precise hour of our dying. Craig Blomberg puts this very well when he summarizes what Jesus tells us about his return in these two chapters of Matthew, speaking of when we don't know when he'll return. Blomberg summarizes by saying this, Christ's return will be later than expected. Christ's return will be sooner than expected. Christ's return will come at an unexpected time. <laughs> and as he says in his sermon where he preaches this, I think that covers all the bases, <laughs> right? Again, Christ's return will be later than expected. Christ's return will be sooner than, than expected. Christ's return will come at an unexpected time. None of us knows when he will come back, whether this very hour or next month or in the year 2135, whenever it is. But at all times, my friends, we must be prepared to meet him for the party. Amen? That's what we're waiting for. It's a party with the bridegroom that is our final destination in the parable. Isn't that a way to describe the whole life of discipleship with Jesus? The life of discipleship with Jesus is living in anticipation of the eternal party, the eternal feast with him. We prepare for the party by throwing the whole of us at his feet, trusting him today as the one who saves us and forgives us by his shed blood on the cross. And by coming under his lordship over our lives, living every hour for his glory and for the designs of his kingdom faithfully living out the calling that he has put on us, making him great every hour of our lives by the power that he supplies by his Holy Spirit. My friend, my final question to you once again, are you prepared for the party? Repent of your sin, receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, and be enabled by his Holy Spirit to wisely steward for him all that you are and all that you've been given. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we come to you in prayer and we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We recognize that not one of us knows the precise hour of your return. Only the Father knows when the Son will be sent back. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us in quiet times, in loud times, whatever times we have this week, remind us, Lord, that we must live faithfully according to your call by the power that you give us. May we be ready for your return and for the party. We pray in Jesus' name.